Oh, well, it's good to see you all. Man, I have been looking forward to this week ever since I experienced the last prelude to revival four years ago. It's like Andy said, back then I was a, uh, a sophomore at Northwestern. Um, thought I was going to be a public school music teacher right now. Um, and here I am doing exactly that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm working at EBF. Um, and that's, that's actually office manager, Andy, not office assistant. Yeah, yeah, it's a step up from the, the assistantship. Um, man, Lord have mercy. Um, I hope my life can, can just show you that God can radically change your life in four years. Uh, God can radically change your life in four months. Um, and God can radically change your life through the work of Prelude to Revival. Can anyone testify to that? I believe that revival is in this atmosphere. I believe the Holy Spirit is here in this place. Can anyone just say amen, say hallelujah, say something? (laughs) The Holy Spirit's here. Um, And if you show up, if you keep working, and if you keep doing the work, um, I truly believe that your life will change. Um, At the start, I just want to issue a big thank you to uh, Lance Evans and, and Dr. Ben Wilson Uh, for kicking us off in the evening sessions, as well as uh, uh, Jason, as always, for leading our church, for John Bechtel and and Ben Mangrich, who brought the word yesterday morning and this morning. Um, I'm especially excited for our evening series this time around at Prelude to Revival. Going through the I Am statements of Jesus is, I think, a perfect precursor, a perfect prelude to revival breaking out in each one of our lives uh, and our marriages in our workplaces, in this church, in our city, and, and then in the world. Because um, it starts in our heart, uh, and it ends with the world changed. I just want to say this from the start, just as sort of a general observation. You may want to write this down if you're a note taker in your handy-dandy note guide. Um, you may want to write this down. If you want to experience revival in your life, you must know who Jesus Christ is. If you want to experience revival in your life, you must know who Jesus Christ is. And that's what I love about this theme, because what better way to learn about who Jesus Christ is than to hear what he says about himself? Think about it. When when you meet someone, when you get to know somebody, what do you do? You ask them to tell tell you about themselves. Uh, You say, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, And they say a series of I am statements. I am a student. I am a wife. I am married with three kids. I am working in Chicago. These I am statements instantly cut to the most important attributes about the identity of that person. And the same holds true when we look at the I am statements of Christ. These seven I am statements teach us so much about who Jesus reveals himself to be, his identity, his mission, and his plan to seek and to save the lost. This evening, we find ourselves in night three of Prelude to Revival. Maybe you're starting to feel a little tired. Um, Just encourage you to keep showing up, keep doing the work. Welcome all the people who are joining us online. Thanks for being here, even online. Um, Hope you can come out and join us later in the week. So we find ourselves here at night three and in the eighth chapter of John's gospel. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, in your smartphone app. 
John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. You can turn there. John 8, starting in verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray real fast, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this opportunity to seek your spirit breaking into our lives and revival in in a powerful and a visceral way. I pray that we would catch a glimpse of you that would change our our weeks and our months and and our lives and our marriages and our relationships and our families. Tonight, I pray that you would fill us with your light. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the time I have remaining, I have just the small task, the small task of preaching on what I consider to be one of the most, if not the most prevalent theme in all of Scripture, which is this, light and darkness. Light and darkness. I believe this theme shows up from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, So in the time remaining, we're going to take a look at this theme. And, And here's where I'm going tonight. This is my main thrust this evening Uh, You may want to write this down as well if you like taking notes. To experience revival in your heart, you must first let God change your sinful darkness into his light in Christ. To experience revival in your heart, you must first let God change your sinful darkness into his light in Christ. To experience revival in your heart, you must first let God change your sinful darkness into his light in Christ. And we're going to break this down into three, sec- into three sections, three general questions that are going to govern our time together. First, what does this theme mean in light of the whole Bible? Second, what does Jesus mean in this passage? And third, so what? How are we to respond? So so what does it mean in light of the whole Bible? What does it mean in the context of this passage? And how are we to respond? So first, what does Jesus being the light of the world mean in light of the whole Bible? And, And in order to do this, we actually have to go back to the beginning. And I mean way back in the beginning. So you can actually, if you want to, you can flip to Genesis chapter 1 the very beginning of the entire Bible. Dr. Ben Wilson alluded to this. uh, He mentioned this in his sermon. And we see this theme show up in the very first verses of Scripture. The Bible starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering hovering over the face of the waters. And I want to pause right here and tell you, Never, ever forget the importance of the next three words. Never, ever forget the importance of the next three words of Scripture. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? And God said. And God said. Did God need to speak creation into existence? 
No, right? He could have just done it. But from the beginning of Scripture, God reveals himself as a God of relationship, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in the first verse of Scripture, we see a snapshot of this God who is a God of relationships. He speaks to us. And not only that, his word carries power and authority. Never forget the importance of God speaking his creation into existence. What does God say in verse 3? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first thing God does is he creates light. He didn't accomplish the preconditions for there to be light. He didn't talk about electrons and neutrons and protons. He didn't create all these tiny things. He spoke it and it happened. He spoke it into existence and his word carries so much power that it showed up just like that. The word of God carries authority and the word of God carries authority even to our lives. And God said, let there be light and boom, there was light and God saw that the light was good. Notice, God creates light before he even creates the sun and the moon. Uh, and, and this was striking to me. Uh, I thought, you know, he creates light. Well, he creates the sun. It's, it's the big, glowing, light-filled object in the sky. But if you jump down to Genesis 1, verse 14, it says this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So God created light before God created the object in the sky that gives us light. God created light First, and this is a little bit of foreshadowing here, and we're going to get there. We're going to get to the end of all things. Um, but in the end, there's, there's no sun and, and no moon because the glory of God alone gives us all of the light we need in eternity. So the first thing God does is he creates light. Then if we, uh, if we skip forward to Genesis 3, we know the story changes when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, sin entered the world, uh, and one of the first results of sin entering the world is darkness entering our hearts. Black sin entered each one of our hearts. The fall turned light into darkness. And then in the rest of the Old Testament, we see patterns of light and darkness, light and darkness, repeating themselves over and over and over again throughout all these hundreds of pages of Scripture leading up to the arrival of Jesus, right? God sends spiritual leaders such as Moses, Joshua. God sends kings such as David. God sends prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And God sends judges. And the people of Israel, God's chosen nation, they repent. They enter God's light. They turn away from their idols and they run towards God. They run towards the light of God. uh, But then darkness hits. We see this over and over again. The people uh, run away from God's light back into the darkness. And it can be easy to point at them and say, what are you guys doing? Uh, But in our lives, we... We have the same thing going on. 
We have seasons like this, prelude to revival, where we're praising the Lord day and night and day and night, and God's light is breaking into our lives. And then the next week, there's darkness. There's idolatry. So uh, throughout the rest of the Bible, we have these themes of darkness and light and darkness and light, and and these crescendo in an ever-building intensity until the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene 2,000 years ago. Um, And this establishes a lot of things. Christ's death is is the pointing, uh, what what all the Old Testament references about light, they, they point forward to the arrival of Christ on the scene, to his death and resurrection and to his second coming. Um, And then the theme of light shows up at the the very end of the Bible. In in Revelation 21-23, it says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Um, and I, I want to pause here and, and just sort of illustrate this. And I'm going to illustrate this with this, uh, this beautiful piece that I have right behind me. Um, this is a piece called Revelation Unfolding by EBF artist-in-residence Emily Schopp. Um, and you, you may remember this from the Revelation series. This wasn't an accident to have it up during revival um, because this is very important. The story of Revelation is the story of revival. Uh, the story of Revelation is the story of the Bible and therefore the story of revival. Um, so, so this concept is illustrated in this, this piece. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness hovering over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. First light. Genesis 1. Genesis 3, darkness hits the scene. That's why this box is black. And then we march, ac- we march across the stage and we see patterns of light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, until the end of all things, last light, There's no need for sun and moon, for the glory of God alone will be the source of light that we need. First light, last light. Story of Revelation, even the story of our lives as Christians, as those who have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our lives were created at the moment of conception, first light, and we're marching forward in seasons of light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, huge light when we accepted Jesus Christ, light and darkness, light and darkness, last light when we'll be in heaven, praising Jesus in person forever and ever, amen. So I encourage you to to look at this piece behind me and see the pattern of revival, the pattern of creation, and the, the, the pattern of your life echoed here. Um, Now, I I just want to take a quick fly-through a lot of biblical passages that deal with this concept of light and darkness. And I'm just going to move real fast. Uh, You don't have to turn to any of these places. You can write down the references. Um, My my point here is to illustrate that light and darkness show up all the place in Scripture. In Exodus 25-37, the Israelites are given instructions to build a golden lampstand. Um, And then in the book of Leviticus, they are instructed to keep a continuous light burning. Uh, If if you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah, the Jewish uh, holiday of Hanukkah, it's all about continuing this light miraculously, even though there was no more oil left to burn um, the lamp. And this light was uh, was to point towards God's presence and God's glory. The light signified God's glory. Uh, Even the psalmist writes about light. In Psalm 27.1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
God and his salvation are likened to light. The prophet Isaiah has several references to divine action or prophecy related to light. Uh, In Isaiah 9-2, a familiar passage to many of us, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great, what? Light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 42-6, God's chosen people can bring forth this light. And and pay attention here, we're going to come back to this theme later. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. This pattern not only is in the Old Testament, but also continues to the New Testament. And there's actually a heightened degree of illusion and metaphor prescribed to light and darkness. Um, Not only is light associated with the Lord, but here in the New Testament, darkness is associated with Satan. And and the spiritual life is described as a constant war between light and darkness, between God and Satan, between good and evil, between repentance and idolatry, light and darkness. You see this all over the place in John. Uh, You see this, Paul writes about this in Ephesians, and we're going to come back to one of these passages later. Paul himself speaks of his own conversion in the book of Acts as being changed from darkness into light. John speaks to this as well. The the, the same author of the Gospel of John and his letters in 1 John 1 and 2, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then obviously at the the end of the New Testament, the passage that I just read from Revelation, we see that there's no need for the Son because the glory of the Lord is sufficient, eternal light for all those um, who trust in him and and, and have fellowship and dine with Christ in heaven. So do you see how prevalent this theme is? Uh, I I know this was was several miles wide and an an inch deep, Uh, but my, my point is to get you thinking about the fact that light and Darkness is perhaps one of the most prevalent themes in the entire Bible. And for Jesus to claim that he is the light of the world is an incredibly radical claim. And we're going to see this in a second. But it's so radical that it caused the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, to pick up rocks and throw them at Christ with the intention of killing him. And he has to use a divine action uh, to get out of that situation because his time had not yet come. Jesus being the light of the world is an incredibly radical claim. And we see this throughout the whole Bible. So second, what does Jesus being the light of the world mean in the context of this passage? What does Jesus, being the light of the world, mean in the context of this passage? Um, let's refamiliarize ourselves with John 8:12. John 8:12 says, "Again Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." 
going back to what Dr. Ben Wilson said to us on Sunday, the I am statements of Jesus are so crucial, um, not only because they reveal to us who Jesus is, but they also reach backwards and hearken back to the time that the Lord spoke to Moses directly at the burning bush. Moses asked uh, the Lord, who shall I say sent me to deliver all these messages? And, and God said, I am who I am, or I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. For to, for, so for Jesus to claim I am the light of the world was incredibly radical because he was using a name of the Lord in that moment. He was identifying with a name of the Lord that was so sacred to the Jewish people of the day that they were not allowed to utter it out loud. They were not allowed to say this word with their mouths. And Jesus identifies as that God, as that I am. This claim is scandalous to those who do not understand it. Now, to set the context a little bit, Jesus here, uh, we, we pick up the passage in the middle of this intense back-and-forth heated debate between Christ and the Pharisees. Uh, and, and it's during the Feast of Booths. It's during a, a Jewish religious holiday known as the Feast of Booths. Uh, real quick, this was just designed to commemorate God's faithfulness to Israel while Israel was wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. So the people would leave their homes and build these sort of makeshift tents and live in a tent for seven days and seven nights, remembering the faithfulness of God who protected them when they were wandering without a home, when they were sojourners, just as we at Evanston Bible Fellowship are sojourners. So they're, they're, they're out uh, sleeping on the ground in these tents, and there's a big menorah burning in the temple square. This is before electricity, so a big menorah, these big seven candles, huge lamps are burning. And what's so interesting about this passage is that Jesus makes this claim. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, um, in what scholars argue is the seventh day of the Feast of Booths. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world, when the light of the lamps shone the brightest of that entire religious holiday. Jesus claimed, I am the light of the world when God's presence was being signified in such a loud and in-your-face way through the burning of these candles, these big torches. So in light of, of their celebration of God's presence, Jesus makes the claim, I am the light of the world. Now let's keep reading. Let, let's see where Jesus takes this. In verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So you see what Jesus does. The, the Pharisees question him. They push back and they say, no, you're, you're testifying about yourself. You can't just make that claim and not back it up. Where's your evidence? Where's your evidence, Jesus? Um, Jesus says, well, 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 first of all, I can provide testimony about myself. Uh, and second of all, I do have witnesses because I and the Father are one. Uh, you don't know that because you don't know the Father and you don't know me. 
But if you did know me, you would know my Father who sent me. So Jesus shares witnesses in the other persons of the Godhead, in God the Father who sent him, and in the Holy Spirit who indwelt Jesus during his earthly ministry. Um, And further, Jesus has human witnesses as well. Uh, People like Simeon, um, Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus, John the Baptist, all of the disciples. Um, So Jesus defeats this claim. Um, he, he, He debunks the claim that he can't make testimony about himself. And, and, and Jesus moves on next in, in verse 21. So let's pick up in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Stop right there. At the end of that verse, at the end of verse 24, we read, I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What I want you to understand about this chapter is is all of these I am statements of Christ are very important, but in the eighth chapter of John's gospel, there are actually four I am claims of Jesus. Four I am claims. The first one, I am the light of the world. Um, But we're going to take a look at the next three statements. So clearly this chapter is incredibly important because Jesus is self-identifying as God, as the God of the universe, as sent from the Father himself, using four I am statements. This concept of I am he, again, reaches back towards that time in Exodus where God spoke to Moses. And, and hear what he's saying. Jesus is saying he's, he's going away. He's going to leave. Unlike what the Pharisees thought, he's not going to establish a political empire right here in the now. He's going to establish his kingdom. Um, and, and we've been going through the book of Revelation. We know that in the end, he will reign in totality, in authority, uh, in the presence of God. Um, But the Pharisees were looking for the wrong thing. They missed it. They were looking for a political king, and Jesus came to set them free from their sins spiritually. The cross had to come before the crown. So uh, when we look at verse 24, uh, we see this this second I am statement. Uh, Let's skip ahead to verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So in the context of of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, many come to faith in Christ. And and, and Jesus is elaborating about how he's sent from the Father, but the eyes of the Pharisees are so blind that they can't see. That's why Jesus says, you don't know me. You don't know me. And because you don't know me, you don't know my Father who sent me. You don't even recognize that God sent me because you're looking for the wrong thing. 
I wish I had time to, to go through the rest of this chapter, um, but starting in, in around verse 48, um, we see the, the argument take a turn, uh, and I want to get to the fourth I am statement of Christ. Um, they start talking about Abraham, about Father Abraham, uh, the father of the Jewish race. Uh, so let's start reading in verse 52. Um, we'll, we'll get a running start at the I am statement. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon, uh, because Jesus had just claimed that Abraham did not even taste death because his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Um, Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, and here it is, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. Jesus is saying that he exists before Abraham existed. He exists in eternity. He's the light of the world. He is the son of man. Before Abraham was, he is. So what did the Pharisees do? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. For Jesus to claim the things that he's claiming in this passage, for Jesus to claim before Abraham was I am, for Jesus to claim I am he, I am the son of man, for Jesus to claim, I am the singular light of the world. There's not many paths to my Father, but one, and it's me. Not, not me, Jesus. I am the light of the world. For Jesus to make this claim was to make a bold, external, obvious assertion that he is and always has been the promised Messiah. This passage is wide-ranging, and we haven't even dove into to all of it, but it constantly comes back to the sufficiency of the light of Christ and the brokenness of every artificial source of light coming from idolatry. The light of Christ is sufficient for all of us. But so many things disguise themselves as light, even in our own lives. The Bible says that, that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. That's why sin seems so cool. That's why sin and darkness, which we, which we know intellectually, right? Here at Evanston Bible Fellowship, we know intellectually that this is darkness, the sin that we're in, the reason that we had to show up to Prelude to Revival this Tuesday when we could be out having dinner somewhere. We know that this is sinful, 
but it's disguised, it's clothed, it's wrapped in this fake, fluorescent, weird, artificial light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But you have to recognize that that light is fake. That light, that light is phony. That light does not last. It withers the moment you reach for that sin, that lust, that greed. So I want to turn now and wrap up by, by asking that third question, that so what question. If, we are to res- uh, if Jesus is the light of the world, so what? How are we to respond to Jesus being the light of the world? And I want to start by reading the start of our passage again, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to walk in God's light. And we're going to take a look at two aspects of how we can respond to the light of Christ. First, there's an internal focus, and second, there's an external focus. So let's jump into Ephesians 5 and look at the internal focus. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8. How are we to respond to Jesus being the light of the world? First, with an internal focus. Ephesians 5.8 For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So internal focus. Internally, we are to walk as children of light. Remember the main thrust this evening. If you want revival to break out in your life, you've got to let God change your sinful, what? Darkness into God's, what? Light in Christ. If you want revival to break out in your heart, you've got to let God change your darkness into his light. Walk as children of Light, and I've got to ask you, where in your life is there darkness? Where in your life is there darkness? Because it's there for each one of us. And I don't know each one of you. I don't know each one of your stories. But Prelude to Revival is designed to combat seasons of spiritual sluggishness, to combat seasons of spiritual darkness, and to penetrate that darkness with the light of Christ. And Paul here in Ephesians 5 talks about exposing that darkness. We expose our inner darkness to the light of Christ. Let let me illustrate it this way. If you're at home and and, and all the lights are off, you're in a totally dark house, 
and, and one, one, uh, you've got two rooms, one door is open, okay? They're both dark. What happens when you turn a light on in one room? Through the opening in the door, the light pours into the darkness. That's, that's why the opening of the book of John says that darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. We have to expose our darkness by turning on the light and letting that light flood into our lives. Um, and it's interesting that, that we're going through this text this evening because this morning, those of you that were here, we, we talked a lot about fellowship. We talked a lot about one another. We talked a lot about community. And write this down. The way you expose sin to the light is in community. The way you expose your sin to the light is in the context of community. And I've got to be honest with you. It hurts sometimes. It hurts me because I want to preserve this image of myself and my ethos community um, that's perfect and lovely and full of light. Um, but instead... I hug that sin, that, that fluorescent light, instead of that pure vitamin D-soaked light of Christ. It's hard to drag secret sin into the light, but until we do that, we will not experience revival. You can show up every morning and every evening this week, and nothing will change in your life if you don't first turn on the light. In the context of community, in your ethos community, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your families, at your workplace, turn on the light. Prelude to revival will do nothing unless you let God turn your darkness into his light in Christ. So, an in internal focus, we are to walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And how do we know what's good and right and true? We get into the Bible in community. We show up to Prelude to Revival. We show up to church on Sunday mornings. Internal focus. Walk as children of light. Notice also there's an external focus. I want to wrap up by, by flipping over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So our internal focus, walk as children of light. Our external focus, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. And it says something striking. It says, you are the light of the world. What? We just spent 40 minutes talking about how Jesus Christ is the light of the world. This doesn't make any sense. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but he gives this light to us. External focus. We are to internally walk as children of the light and then externally let that, let, let that light shine in us and through us to the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We let that 
soak into our hearts internal focus, and we shine that to the world, letting them see our good deeds, our acts of courage, our acts of kindness, all the one another commands we talked about this morning. Jesus is the light of the world, but he gives this light to us. So I've got to ask you, are you setting your light under a basket? Are you hiding the light of Christ which dwells in your heart? How are you doing that? Where in your life are, your, are you doing that? And during communion, as you're, as you're examining your heart, I want you to think of these questions. Where in your life is there darkness, internal focus? And where in your, your life are you hiding the light of Christ, which dwells in you. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And as believers in him, he gives us his light and tells us to shine it to the world. Brothers and sisters, don't go through prelude to revival without dealing with this first, without dealing with the stuff in your heart. This week will mean nothing Sure, you'll get emotionally jammed up or whatever, singing worship songs, but if you don't deal with the darkness in your heart, the benefits of this week will vanish quickly. So take this opportunity to examine yourselves. Take this opportunity to ask God, Father, where is there darkness in my life? Father, where am I letting my light fade? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to each one of us. I thank you that there is a light that shines in the darkness. I thank you that this light's name is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. I pray that you would give us strength to deal with the darkness in our hearts, in our lives. I pray that you would bring our darkness into your light. I pray that your light would penetrate the sin in our hearts, that we would not cling to fake, artificial, fluorescent sources of light, but instead run with everything we have in us by your spirit in your strength towards you, towards Jesus. I thank you that you pursue us even in our weakness. And Lord, I ask that you'd give us the strength to live out the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. In his name we pray, amen.